0: Get get an amen for that. All right. James chapter 2. For those that are visiting, we've been going through the book of James and we are going to stop and pray right now because we're going to need it this morning. (laughs) Uh oh, yeah, I heard that. Let's pray. Father God, uh, you are incredible. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as we've sung about, you're the God of wonders. Everything that we see, you've created. And so this morning we pray as we look into your word, you, uh, we allow our, your spirit to talk to us. And you help us to see what we need to see in our lives and the lives of people around us in our world. So lead us this morning in your word. Give us the courage to accept your truth. And may we have the courage to leave this place and realize that our real ministry is out there when we wake up every day and we meet people and you bring people across our path to bless. We thank you that we can be here and we worship to an audience of one and we bow our knee in humility to you and you alone. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Amen. James chapter 2. Quick review. James has been telling us it's time to grow up. And growth happens in the midst of trials and temptations. It's not if trials are going to come, it's not if temptations are going to happen, it's when. And he says, choose joy. How do we choose joy? He's been telling us that we have to receive God's word, and he used the illustration of a farmer where it's implanted into our lives. We have to make sure the soil's right so it grows. He talks about practicing God's word, where we allow the mirror. We look into a mirror, and the mirror is meant to transform us. We see what we see, but we alter our perceptions because they need to be altered. And then we share God's word. Our talk must be transformed. And we saw last week how our service comes with no expectation in return. To be Christ-like means What Jesus did for us, he wants us to do for others. So we have to make sure that we do not allow ourselves to adopt the world's ethos around us. Now, James 2, he takes it a step further. And what we're going to see happening in James right now is this. He gives us illustrations of the trials and temptations that will come our way. So he gets very practical about how our faith should work out. And he starts naming them. And we will face these. It faced the church in the first century. But since the church is made up of people, we will face them. Amen? (laughs) So realize when we start looking at this text, we're going to look at the first four verses. It's an illustration that relates to a broader principle. And what we're talking about this morning is the problem of partiality. Now, if you don't know what partiality means, substitute the word bias prejudice, tribal, it's where we think that our group of people is superior to another group of people. And so the question becomes, is what do we do when people show up that violate our particular theology? In James' day, it had to do with the Gentiles. You know, it was all Jews being God's chosen people. Then Christ comes along and says, no, it was meant for the entire world. So they struggled allowing outsiders in. What about the half-breeds, the Samaritans, where Jews ended up marrying non-Jews and they were pushed off into another country that it wasn't even right for a Jew to walk through? What about the unclean, the lepers, the crippled, the blind, the prostitutes? Then what about the zealots? The zealots were like terrorists. And, you know, Jesus brought one of those onto his team. What about Roman soldiers? What about the people that our parents taught us we shouldn't hang around with? Now, they had their lists in our day, and I'm curious what would be our lists. I mean, think about the people that you were told, don't befriend those people. And if we're brutally honest this morning... I think many of our lists would not reveal a theology of the cross, but a theology of us. So let's begin James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let's just stop right there for a moment. You've heard me say this so often, starting points are critical. Here, James starts with what? He starts with Jesus Christ and just not... Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So he is putting that out, saying, listen, Jesus is high and exalted. How should this impact how you think and see other people? Now, most churches have doctrinal statements. Amen. (laughs) That was kind of weak. Maybe you don't know we have one. And you know what? Doctrinal statements are good. They're useful. But, but they are not substitutes for doing God's will. You don't see Jesus someday say, listen, we have a great doctrinal statement. He'd say, but what are you doing? How are you living that out? We saw in the video this morning. According to scripture, everyone is created in the image of God. That's a universal truth. It's amazing, though, how many times we violate our doctrine by how we treat each other and people in our world. While we say that's true, we live it out in different ways. So here is the principle I think James is trying to tell us, and then we're going to get into the specifics. He's telling us the way we behave towards people indicates what we really believe about God. The goal here, then, is to align our behaviors with Christ. And that's why he starts out of the gate saying, listen, don't practice partiality. Don't let your biases, your prejudices, don't let those things win. Look at Jesus Christ. You claim Jesus Christ. You lift Jesus Christ up. You say he's the king of king, Lord of lords. It's about time that you allow that truth to move from your head to your heart. So in light of their doctrine of Jesus, how does one practice Jesus. Of course, the short answer, the nice answer, but we got to get specific about this, is we have to look at everyone through the eyes of Christ. Amen? Now, how did people, or how did Jesus look at people? And before we consider that, ask this question. How did people, the world all thought, ethos that we're supposed to get rid of, how did they look at Jesus? When you look at Jesus coming, the Son of God, the king, the Lord of Lords, when people came to him, how did people look at him? Well, I think there's two observations. And it says a lot about who we are. First thing they did was judge him by human standards. And we are prone to outward impressions, aren't we? I mean, how many times do people say, Well, look at the so-so? Look at how they're dressed, look at what they wear, look at their head, hair, <laughs> or a lack of hair. Amen, right, Frank? (laughs) I heard that. We make all these judgments based upon outward impressions. We call it first impressions. And this is what the world did to Jesus. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 1 through 3. The prophet Isaiah says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Of course, he's been revealed to us, to the prophets. He came down in the flesh. And here's what it said about Jesus and what would happen in his day. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Translation, Jesus walks in a room, nobody's going to notice. No beauty that we should desire him. Translation, he wasn't one of the good looking people that the world said are good looking. He was despised, rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Here's what this says. We know his list of credentials. We know who he was. He was the Messiah. He was the King of King and Lord of Lords. He was not a celebrity. He did not impress people. He was ordinary. He lost the popularity contest in the local synagogue. In fact, it says... He so disgusted many, many people, they turned their face. Do you know people that when they walk in the room, you want to walk away? Okay, be honest. Come on. We do that, don't we? This is what Jesus did when he walked into a place. Now, we know right now he sits at the right hand of the Father. We know he's resurrected Lord and Savior. We know that when he shows up, all knees will bow. We know that we will be humbled in his presence. We know that there's no one here that can brag about what he or she has done in light of what he 's done for us. But he was subject to what we do. We judge people by how they look and our opinions and our preferences and our ideas. And Jesus says, "We don't do it that way." In Matthew chapter 22 verses 15 through 16. It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, here's what they said about Jesus We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, and you are not swayed by appearances. Okay? That's how Jesus sees people. He doesn't judge them, outward circumstances. He doesn't judge them based upon other people's opinions. He's not swayed by how they look or don't look. In John 7, 24, it says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. So why? Well, we accept people the way Jesus does. And so that means at GBC here, visitor who's a brother or sister in the Lord, we accept them because Jesus lives in them. We also believe that if they're not a believer in Christ, we receive them because Christ died for them. Amen? So we're prone to judge people by outward appearances. Secondly, we're prone to judge based upon people's pasts and people's sins. Tax collectors of Jesus' day. Zacchaeus, he went to his house. And so he was called a friend of sinners. He invited Matthew to be on his team. Matthew wasn't even invited to be in the synagogue. The woman at the well, half-breed a Samaritan, she was despised by her own people because she came alone at noon, not at 6 a.m. with all the other women. The lepers, he did something that was unthinkable in his day. He actually reached out and he touched them. The lame, the blind. You know, we build all these theologies to explain why these people are less than anyone else. That's what they did. They had all the rationale, they had all the reasons, they had everything lined up. And when Jesus, who was the Son of God, came, someone they prayed for three times a day, every day, for centuries, he violated their doctrine, and so they crucified him. Jesus saw the potential in the lives of everyone. He never compromised his holiness. But That's why he was called a friend of sinners and accused of many things. But he was simply helping God's people see the truth about God themselves and other people. And he's telling us this morning, we don't judge based on externals and we don't define people by their past and their sins. I'm going to say that again. I heard one amen. Should be a few more here. We do not judge based on externals and we do not judge and define people by their past and their sins. Amen? Amen. So James tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. No partiality. That's the criteria of how I'm going to see you and I'm going to say I want to see you as God thinks, and feels about you. So Jesus does not treat people by external criteria. Their value is not based on the world's values. It's not based on clothes and money. That's classism. It's not based on the color of their skin. That's racism. It's not based on their gender. That's sexism. And so we either conform to the world around us or we align ourselves with Jesus. Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is the way you're treating people around you match your belief in Jesus? Is it matching how Jesus lives? Then he gets an illustration. Now remember, here's the principle. The principle is the way we behave towards people indicates what we really believe about God, and we need to align our behaviors with God's value system. But here's the illustration. He talks about classism. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. It's obvious they're not the -the run-of-the-mill person. They pull up in a $100,000 Mercedes. They walk in. Their appearance grabs the attention of many people. And right behind him is another man. Walks in, shabby clothes, indication that they're poor. What do you do? Of course, the greeters get in the act. What are the greeters? And how do they greet the people? One better than the other? Then there's the ushers. Where do the ushers put these people? According to the text, you know, the the wealthy, you want to sit right down front. Now, of course, they weren't Baptists back then because, you know, Baptists sit in the back. (laughs) And the poor man, what do they do? Well, why don't you sit off in this corner where people can't see you? I mean, that's the indication of the text. Now, let me make this observation. Did you notice that nothing was said about the rich man or the poor man and their wealth or lack of wealth. That's not in the passage. Today, we get all caught up in labels and accusations and we start blaming sides and point fingers. And so some people say to the poor man, why don't you go out and get a job? Or we flip the coin and we help them play the victim and say, you know that evil rich person over there? If they'd only give their fair share, you wouldn't have to live this way. The rich man, some people elevate, they bring him in, they hope for a big offering. Nobody laughed. It's true, though, isn't it? We get a little more excited if someone can drop a bigger. And, you know, we forget what Jesus did when he's watching the offering. A bunch of rich people came in and they put a bunch of coins in and they made a big display. And a widow comes in with her little mite, her little penny, puts it in. He turns around and says, listen, she gave more than they did. Seeing people with the eyes of Jesus, stuff. Or to the rich man, we sit there and say, you know, they must have done something wrong to have that kind of wealth. They really aren't generous people, and we kind of avoid them. James doesn't go there. He doesn't do any of that. See, that's not the point. The point of the passage, if we look through it, is the rich man, poor man, they all need Jesus. And everyone has a story. And if we judge by outward appearances, instead of sitting down and talking to people, if we judge by past situations and stories without sitting down and getting to know people and their hearts and who they are and where they've been, we will make evil partiality judgments. I had a chance one time to interview some very wealthy people late in their lives. They were in their 80s and I asked them two questions. First question was, what was it like in church in Lancaster County? And they all said this, one word. They said it was lonely. I asked them to explain. They go, well, they said, you know, they sat us on the boards. They wanted our money. And they said, we get that. God bless us. We wanted to be generous. We give a lot of money, but they didn't want our ideas. It's almost like they were afraid of us. Second question was, did anyone ever intentionally disciple you? And they said, no. Most people were afraid of our family and our wealth. That was some insight I didn't see before because a lot of times the wealthy people in Lancaster County, it looks like they're really popular and everybody, well, you know what? Everybody wants something from them and they just don't want to get to know who they are. Flip the coin, story of someone poor one time, early in my ministry, this was like, oh man, man. 38 years ago, a long time ago, young, naive pastor, and there was a new family visiting the church. They attended three weeks. Now, this church was not accustomed to having new visitors. So this was kind of new and exciting. And I'm standing in the back, and I overhear the treasurer greeting this family. And here's what he said. We want to thank you for coming out these last few weeks, but we want you to know we don't want your kind of people here. Now being young, being naive, thinking all oh, Christians are just wonderful—I mean, I had to go home, think about what I heard, and then go talk to him. And I confronted him, and here's what he said: "Well, pastor, you don't understand. They haven't put anything in the offering plate yet." I thought, how tragic. Judging people, he never got to know their story. He even got, to, he never even got to know whether or not they were believers. Now, remember last week when I said pure religion is, or James said this, it's giving with no expectation of anything in return? Now, how many times have we as people in the church asked the question, well, if we do this, what's in it for me? Or how many times have we said, well, if I do this, am I going to get the right recognition? Are people going to know? So James is actually taking this principle saying, listen, all people are created in the image of God and you're called to serve them, period. No little amendments, no adjustments, no what ifs. He says, I want you to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And I want you to do it because... Christ declared you righteous, and there's no way you could ever pay him back. In fact, what you need to remember is, in him declaring you righteous, it cost him a crucifixion. And what the sin is here is how you interpret and treat people. Look at James 1.4 again. James 1, I mean, James chapter 2, verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, do you see here? The Bible does not say don't judge. In fact, the passage I read in John says, listen, you need righteous judgment. But don't judge with evil motives. And it goes back to what he says in chapter one. You know, we can either pursue, choose joy, pursue our trials, pursue our temptations, or we can be drawn away by our own desires. And the sin here is you make a value judgment not based on Christ, but based on your opinions, your preferences, your ideologies, your appearances, your past, your own sins. Now, let me take time to make some observations. Because some of these distinctions that we wrestle with today, we were taught. Let's talk about history in America for a moment. And let's talk about racism. The church used to have scriptural evidence to promote enslaving the African-American race as inferior. And that carried for many years. And even after the laws were changed, and even after they were given equality and all those kinds of things, we harbored some thoughts. And we harbored some tendencies. When I was going to Lancaster Bible College, again, that was a long, long time ago, back in the 70s. I helped run a coffee house. Now, for those of my generation, coffee house is really popular. It's not a coffee house that you think about where you go pay five bucks for a cup of coffee. (laughs) Whoa, yeah. Uh, If I would have known that, I would have invested in some coffee ministry. Not that we were part of. But coffee house was where you open a place up in the middle of the city. And you open it up to anybody coming in. And you sat, you talked, you know, and you got to know the the people in the neighborhood. And so I helped a missionary couple... start a coffee house down in Columbia. I remember there was a young lady who wanted to help out and she came and then she approached me the second week said, listen, my parents will not allow me to help you. And I said, why? And she says, well, you need to talk to them. So I did. And the father looked at me and says, listen, I don't want my daughter around black men. She might get raped. That was his words. And I thought, well, how tragic. Because that might happen around white men, too. But he had a stereotype in his mind. Because in Columbia, the section we were in was predominantly black. Let's talk about other religions. Be honest for a moment. How many of you that are older were taught that all Catholics are going to hell? (laughs) You laugh because that's what you heard. Is it true? No. But I remember sometimes, and I was even in a class at Langston Baba College that taught Catholicism was a cult. That's religionism. If you go to countries like Zimbabwe, there's what's called tribalism. It exists between the Shona and the Inzimbali. You go to Haiti and the Dominican Republic, there's tribalism that Dominicans look down upon the Haitians. And it has to do with their appearances. It has to do with the size of their noses. That's the world. And that's why James said last week, listen, keep yourself separate from that kind of ideology. Don't think that way. Don't be that way. I guess what I'm saying is that some of this partiality is earned honestly, but, but it's still evil. James doesn't say, listen, I know you met well. I know you were taught. No, James says, listen, it's all evil. And it's created in your own desires. Now, let me push a bit further, if I haven't pushed enough. Two couples walk in. Man and a wife. Second couple's in a lesbian relationship. How do you greet and where do you tell them to sit? And how does Christ want you to greet them and tell them where to sit? Now, before you answer, many of us think we know the mind of Christ when we don't. Amen? (laughs) Amen. Minds are plagued with our own prejudices. And we have to realize that Jesus violated cultural standards of his day. He touched lepers. He dignified women, slaves, and kids. He stood up for the woman taken in adultery. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Showing no partiality is tough. Because somebody will have a comment about your own faith. And they'll accuse you of things that are not true. Two people walk in to GBC. One's wearing a Trump Make America Great Again hat. The other's wearing Hillary Really won hat. Where do you greet them? Where do you sit them? Now that is causing quite the ruckus here. Come on. I'm going to say this again. And here's what's tragic. I've seen more partiality in the arena of politics with people who claim to follow Jesus than in my entire 40 years of ministry. And James says, it should not be. It's evil. Two families walk in. One's dressed just like us. The other's dressed and they look kind of of like Amish. (laughs) Now, I want to ask you last week when uh, David Lapp walked in with his family and you saw them. What were your assumptions when you saw them? And maybe you don't know that inside the Amish community there's there's like 10 different sects of belief and they belong to something called the Amish of a different way because they follow Jesus. But when you saw them, what kind of partiality kicked in? Pure religion James says, serves unconditionally and engages in solutions. I hear Christians say all the time, I want to be a New Testament church. Do you realize what you're saying? In the New Testament, when they did the right thing, they were stoned, they were crucified, they were tortured, they lost everything, they were put in prison simply for doing the right thing. And we get a little nervous about what someone's going to say about us if we do the right thing. Now, what James is saying in these first four verses is that we treat everyone with dignity and respect. Why? Because they were made in the image of God. Why? Because they have incredible potential. He doesn't say you have to agree or approve of what they're doing, he doesn't even say you have to like it. But he says you do have to. Love them as Christ loved you. Let me suggest three things in closing. The first is we have to examine our own hearts and minds. And it goes back to James chapter 1, doesn't it? The word, implant, mirror, share. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction when we do that. And instead of listening to all the world's voices about how we should react, we listen to God and say, listen, this is what I want you to do. And that's why when you had a situation where the gay community decided to protest Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A owner believes that it's one man, one woman. He says, listen, everybody who owns a Chick-fil-A, they're out there protesting, you feed them free. It's on me. You give them drinks, give them food. You do whatever you need to do to make sure they are comfortable because it was the right thing to do. Secondly, Make restitution where restitution needs to happen. If you said or done something that God has brought to your attention, you know, we need to go make it right. That's a big principle in the world of addiction, isn't it? And what's sad is it needs to be a big principle in the world of Christians. Thirdly, and this is directed at those who are on the end of someone's sin of partiality, okay? And there's so many different levels, I don't have the time to get into it. But if you're on the end of someone's prejudice and bias, if you've been told to go sit in a corner or you've been put down or put away because of what you believe, here's my advice, and it's twofold. Number one, don't sit and wait for them to apologize. Forgive them. Otherwise, it will eat your soul. And you'll become like the very person you say you despise. Now, I've witnessed the power of this kind of forgiveness in the lives of people who I've worked with for many years. People have been sexually abused as kids. I will tell you right now, in all my cases I've worked at, most of them never get an apology. I think if I do a percentage in my... Work with people, it might be 1%. But I watch the miracle of transformation when they decide to forgive. Secondly, what you have to do is find people who show no partiality. They're there. And so often they get overclouded because you're so caught up in the person who violated your sense of dignity. Just walk away. Find people who are there who will engage you because of who you are, and they'll help see your potential, and they'll walk with you, and they'll offer grace, and they'll offer dignity. You know, the last question in the video is what do you see? Let me kind of change that just one way. You find what you look for. You find what you look for. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. But I want to say this. I know this sermon probably has made many people feel uncomfortable for different reasons. Many of you are probably thinking, well, what is Pastor Reg really saying? I'm just saying what James said. Show no partiality. Period. He says it's evil. Having said that, you need to understand that In our diverse group of people, everyone here is welcome. Now, at GBC, we may not always get that right. We're a work in progress just like you. Amen? (laughs) But you need to understand there's nothing in your past or present that could keep you from Jesus. Except you. That's it. You can find people to say, well, I don't want that kind of religion. Well, guess what? I probably don't want that kind of religion either. But we are here to walk with you if you're here to walk with us, because we need help as well as you do. And so look at that not as a one-way thing, but a two-way street. But you need to know there's nothing in your past or present that could keep you from Jesus and hopefully from us. Except you. I want to pray for you guys. Let's pray. Father God, uh, may your spirit just work in our lives. I pray that we at GBC are a church that shows no partiality. And I realize that's tough because there's so much stuff in our heads and we're, we're cluttered with the world's impressions. So forgive us when we're like the world and we judge externally and we judge according to people's past and sins. Uh, We shouldn't be doing that. And we accept your word, Lord, when it says those those are evil motives. Help us to purify our minds and our hearts. Help us to walk with each other. Help us to weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Help us to come alongside when people are struggling. And come alongside when people are rejoicing. May we help people who want to quit. May we help people who just are soaring right now. I want to thank you, Lord, for um, your truth. I want to thank you for everyone in this room. They are made in your image, and we are blessed because they're here. Teach us now, Lord, uh, what this means to live this way. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and everyone said.